You're tuned into the Vellon News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison. On this week's episode of the Interviews Podcast, Spencer, you sat down with Tom Ritchie, one of the legends of the American mountain bike and just cycling scene in general. Uh, you interviewed Tom at Interbike, I believe. That's right, Fred. It was uh, really a special honor to sit down with this guy who's one of the pioneers of hand-built frames, mountain biking, just any mountain bike. I mean, he's one of the guys who built the very first mountain bikes back in the day, back in California. Uh, personally, being a longtime mountain biker, that was special for me. And also, as someone who appreciates uh, hand-built steel frames, bikes of all sorts, it, it was really interesting to talk to him about his opinion on this new movement where, you know, hand-built bikes are really popular these days. You see the North American hand-built bike show, NABS, that's totally taken off. People are always talking about it, loving the photo galleries of all these wild bikes. He's uh, He's got interesting opinions on all of that. He's He's been there. He's been building bikes for a long time. Had a wide-ranging discussion with him about those things, the bike industry in general, and just all, all manner of uh, topics uh, related to mountain bike and in general. He's, he's a real interesting guy with a lot of backstory. Um, what about mustache-related uh, questions? Ask him any mustache-related questions. I was a questions. little intimidated. Yeah. I, I didn't want to wade into that. That's a, you know, that's a really uh, hot-button topic, and he's clearly uh, a forerunner of mustaches here in the bike industry. So I felt like I was a little out of my depth trying to talk to him about mustaches. Well, let's get to it. Tom Ritchie. Uh, mountain bike and cycling pioneer, and really handsome mustache wearer. Indeed. Tom Ritchie, welcome to the Velo News Podcast. Thanks for taking some time here at Interbike to speak with us about your extensive history with bikes, the bike industry, everything. Welcome to the Velo News Podcast. Thank you. Nice to uh, make the thing happen. Yeah. So we're here at Interbike. And I'd imagine that you've been to a lot of these over the years. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it was at the one of the original ones in Long Beach, or if not the original. Do you have any um, Do you have any wild stories from over the the many many years that you've come to Interbike? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's not really a story that uh, would be all that fun to talk about, but my. My first uh, interbike was basically because of uh, the emergence of, of, the, of the mountain bike and being, uh, being uh, associated with Gary and Charlie and having a booth. And uh, I think one of the fun things that uh, that uh, that I was able to able to see was, of course, the era of, of road cycling that was leading up to the mountain bike or the ballooner and all the you know amazing athletes that came out of Europe that were uh, Eddie Merckx was there uh, at the show you know just walking around and uh, having him throw the leg over one of my first mountain bikes and kind of smile um, in broken English you know say say something like good job or whatever you know, it was probably one of my one of my all-time highlights <laughs> being that i had a had a poster of him over over our bed <laughs> that's yeah to meet essentially i'd imagine one of your heroes right yeah it's uh, yeah that's special yeah. i yeah I, i've talked to charlie as well charlie kelly and i just can't get over just admiring 
you guys for having lived through this era when you essentially invented a sport together in that little crew of people in, in, the, in the Bay Area, California. Did you understand at the time just how big it was going to become to build these mountain bikes that just expanded people's understanding of what a bicycle could actually do? I don't think you know any one of us have ever really said we understood. I think history is one of those things that you only see from one side and not the other. Um, I think that you know, for all of us that uh, uh, that we're that we're passionate about it, uh, the story behind the story of that is is that cycling. Uh, was kind of getting um, competitive road cycling was kind of getting messed up in Northern Cal and we went through a period where there was probably the best of all the uh, you know senior road racing events where uh, the courses were amazing the uh, you know, it was it was it's the best area to have road races over in Cal. Um, I mean, I could go down the list and name them. I mean, the tour of California just had happened in the Sierras, you know, with Alcala and and uh, and you know, as a as a peaking out of the period of time in the early '70s, uh, the um, Highway Patrol in 1974 decided to, to, to not support any more road closures. And we went from the best racing to the worst. We went immediately into the Criterium era of NorCal racing. And for me, and I'm sure for others, it kind of burned us out. We were, we were road, we were into the road, we were, we were you know, good at what we did, and to have to mix it up with the Southern California crit riders was not fun. And to give up either through sprints or through crashes, which were, you know, if you're, if you kind of took the his took the con context of the time, we were our own mechanics. We all had basically one bike. To lose a bike, either in a crash, was an expensive thing, and uh, to not benefit from the potential, you know, amateur prize list, which was pretty meager. Um, That's your gas it, money, right? That's your well, gas money. Yeah, it was gas money, and it was maybe <laughs> the set of wheels that you really needed. Yeah, you know, of course. If you were lucky. So, that period of time, uh, the backdrop of 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 really, uh, you know, kind of playing more and more. Uh, outside the traditional racing scene and uh, the road racing scene and uh, and the you know the closure of, uh, of of the best best races was mountain was riding off road and uh, I think that you know we all saw that as as a secondary form of of staying in shape and and doing things that are new and kind of almost an alter ego of what was going on 
on the on the road racing side of the sport. It's really interesting to to hear that perspective and to hear that context because to a certain extent to me it almost feels like cycling is going through a similar period right now where road racing seems to be decreasing in popularity and now we're seeing as opposed to the mountain bike it, it seems like more of the gravel riding gravel racing and that sort of thing is that alternative obviously in a much larger scale than of course a group of guys in northern california but what's your what's your view on that does it seem like there's some similarities and what do you think of the overall move toward gravel riding well of course it's a wonderful thing it wasn't called gravel riding when we no that's <laughs> the ironic thing is it's almost like history repeating itself it was, to a certain extent right <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, back in the 70s it was called yopes riding yopes yeah what does that mean yopes j-o-b-t-s yopes brandt oh okay All everyone right. referred to a yopes ride as a gravel ride okay he was the original yeah and so uh you know the the race the very poorly you know understood dynamics of norcal racing was that there would be there would be a race on saturday or sunday and uh you know i i'm training with riding with the national team the olympic team and uh, they all lived within a 50-mile radius of Palo Alto, practically. Practically all of them, except for John Howard. Um, and <laughs> we wanted to do something fun on the weekend. If it was a lousy road race, which it started to turn into in the 74, 75 period, we'd call each other up and say, what are you going to do? And if they said, you know, I'm just not excited about that race and whatever, he says, well, you want to go on a Yopes ride? And, you know, I'd, I'd call up Lundgren or Vieira or whoever, and they said, they say, yeah, let's go on a Yopes ride. And, you know, eight hours later, we'd be, you know, 150, 120 to 150 miles into this thing, Yopes would be charging. Jeez. And, you know, after 30 miles of dirt, we'd all be, you know, mechanically barely limping back. You know, we'd, we'd have gone through all of our spares. And uh, anyway, it turned into a very unique time period that uh, because of Yopes's incredible... Uh, riding ability and his his basically mechanical uh, understanding of the way the bike worked we could do some amazing things he was he between me and him and Peter Johnson or whoever we were the you know the kind of the guardians of mechanical design in those rides and there would be a price that you paid if you didn't show up with a bike that was going to last. Right. And the price was being stuck in the middle of nowhere. And that's a, that's a tall ask back then, given the, the yeah. way that the technology was. That actually gets into something I was going to ask you about. I was checking out the latest Peloton magazine, where you had a nice interview there. And you said something about how it feels to you like people... It's a different era now in the way people relate to their bicycles and understand them and, you know... There's not as many hand-built wheels, for example, things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you know, that unfortunately is is not how I, I you know, like to roll. And, uh, and people that I take, you know, they, you know, very few people even know how to fix a flat tire, frankly, these days. And uh, so what you have is you have years and years and years of, of, uh, of distance and away from the actual mechanics of the bike and understanding the bike. Um, back, uh, back in the 70s, uh, not only was uh, no one giving you a bike to ride, but very few teams were even paying for your expenses or your entry fees or your airfare or anything. Uh, to get my airfare paid for a couple of races back east was a big deal. I had to, I had to change my team up. I, I went from my team with Palto Bike Shop and BBC to uh, Lee Katz uh, in Chicago sponsoring myself and Mike Neal and he paid for some air, some airfare and I jumped ship and that was a big deal back then so just to have uh, some expenses paid and, and, to, and to basically be able to do your own, not only build your own frame for me but basically build your own wheels. I learned how to build wheels and repair tubulars before I built my first frame. Um, but those were the things that, if you understood, you know, if you understood the limits of, of the important parts of your bike and you managed, you know, rebuilding your hubs and, you know, things that had to do with normal maintenance that you see in the third world, you were, you, were, you know, set up to, uh, to do well you know, you had a better advantage. And that's what carried through into the mountain bike because, you know, until the 90s, mid-90s, mountain bike was a non-mechanically assisted sport, which, you know, was very, very true to where I came from and where a number of us came from and wanted it that way. But, of course, then the whole world of professional mountain biking got got to the point where it just followed the European tradition of mechanics and, and uh, zones and those kind of things. So uh, Thomas was was always really, Frischy was always really uh, uh, in my, he was always in my shop. He was always working, you know, was by my side and building some, building the bikes that the team used and understanding my mechanical designs and understanding the products and why I did what I did. And I, I feel that his success was really based on his understanding of the bike and the limit of the bike. And at that time, there were a lot more limits than there were than there are now. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and yeah. and he raced for many many years and yeah, without principally suspension. For, principally for Richie, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, always for Very Richie. Cool. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, started in, in '90 at uh, the uh, the season um, with the first World Cups, the first Grundig series of World Cups, and. And uh, and then basically went on. I sponsored him through his last year in 2002, and then I sponsored him as he transitioned into a team owner, and was the sponsor of uh, all the components on the Scott on the Scott uh, uh, bike team, which wasn't called Scott at that time. It was uh, Scott was just a sponsor like Richie. It was called Swiss Power. And it wasn't until recently that it's the, it's the Scott Schramm sure. uh, team. And 
long time running. It's pretty yeah. And yeah, then 27 the Swiss, years. And the Swiss yeah. are just amazing with the, how deep their mountain bike talent pool is in Switzerland. It's unbelievable. But yeah. But before before you were sponsoring Thomas Frischneck, of course, back back in that. 70s era, I guess, around that time was when you were first starting to weld bike frames, essentially. Yeah. Is it 1972. I, 1972. I built my first bike after repairing a Chinelli that I bought for 50 bucks. Nice. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. If you got to repair the bike, then yeah. that's what you do. I mean, that was a, you know, that was the budget of, uh, of not just me as a, as a 15-year-old, but that was the budget of practically everyone I raced with. And you were one of the first frame builders to really utilize fillet brazing throughout, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is that correct? Well, of course, fillet brazing is about as old as anything, but it was used in uh, England with uh, uh, race cars and uh, airplanes. Um, the, uh, uh, the Rickman motorcycle was fillet based in the 60s. Uh, it just wasn't considered to be uh, uh, viable uh, in terms of uh, bicycle frames. Um, the French, there was there was fillet brazing, but to me, what I was learning about the, the potential of fillet brazing came from, first of all, building with lugs, silver brazing with lugs, understanding the... Uh, the best, uh, the best use, best practice in in the world of frame building. Realizing that the world was handcuffed to certain diameters and certain um, uh, certain uh, lugs and geometry, and I wanted to go off. I wanted to go on my own path, and the only way I could do that is without lugs. And so the first thing I did is I, what I want to do is, is create a stiffer bottom bracket. And if you look at some of the original bikes, they had an ovalized seat tube and a reinforced area behind the chainstay. And there was, of course, no lug to do that. And I, wanted, and, and I wanted to play around with sealed bearing bottom brackets. So in 74, I was doing some uh, first off projects that were for myself uh, to build a better bike for my racing and uh, and I realized that if I had a strong enough bottom bracket joint fillet brazing that I would have it at least enough strong enough in the other joints of the bike and so that was you know uh, a time when other you know the story behind the story is is that was when the world of frame building went from England and uh, French and uh, the European cultures to Italy. And the story behind that story was the Italians discovered the world of investment casting because of the gun makers in Bassano di Grappa and the uh, Beretta factory and, and, and investment casting was a way to create a very um, beautiful looking joint with no effort. And I was miffed by that. I was, you know, I was spending all this time making a beautiful lug from a very crude starting point. 
and they could just come along and just crank out all these you know numbers with very little effort and I just decided this is this is why I'm gonna I'm gonna go fill it pretty much 100% I, I did lugs but for the there was a point in time where I consciously said, you know, this is, I'm not interested in building bikes that can just be cheaply made or inexpensively constructed, well made, but, you know, done quickly and cheaply. So for myself and also I'm sure some of our listeners who don't quite understand frame building, can you just give us that very quick primer on, on what it is and how it's different from... What is, okay. Well, the... Uh, Okay, this, you have to understand that this is before anyone was using TIG welding. And, I mean, TIG welding was, was a completely another, you know, jump in, in frame construction. Of course, TIG welding has been around for a long time in motorcycles, race cars, aircraft, you know, used TIG welding. Uh, but fillet brazing... Uh, is a way of reinforcing a intersection of tubes such that you end up with the right amount of surface area to equivalent the value of a lug. And there's more than one way that that made sense to me. Uh, I knew that the world hadn't changed in tubing design since the turn of the century. So butted tubing has been in use, chromoly butted tubing has been in use the turn of the century. So we're talking 75, 80 years of, of a way of looking at construction. And a lug, a cheap welded sheet metal lug had been around. And that was, the, that was you know, a 75 year uh, quality bike was butted chromoly tubing and an inexpensive lug. And if you worked with a better frame builder, maybe they used silver solder. But very few people were using silver solder because it was expensive, because the world was driven by a very, very cheap entry-level mindset. Even amongst, the, I mean, in 1972, there was a catalog called EuroAsia, and you could buy a complete Nuevo record, Cinelli or Mazi, complete, with the best components, ready to race, for $250. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so oh if you take away the frame, the frame was probably a $50 price, $50, you know? And then you had tubing. So what was the cost of the tubing? What was the cost of the lugs? What was the cost of the paint job? What was the cost of everything minus the builder? <laughs> you know, the building, amazing, process, yeah. building process was 10 bucks, maybe, yeah. maybe. So, I mean, 72 wasn't that long ago when you think about it. So for, uh, for someone to come along and want $250, which is about where I, I came in in 1972 and asked that for the frame. It was already people were gawking. Already people were saying, I could buy a complete bike. What are you charging me 250 for a frame? Well, it's going to be custom. 
well, I'm going to take a lot more care. I'm going to use silver solder. I am going to paint it with Imron. I'm going to do a number of things that are going to make a better bike for you. And so, um, and I had customers. I had plenty of people that wanted a custom-built bike at that time. So the, the, uh, the way in which the stage was set for builders like me and Eisentrout and a few others was that the Europeans were, you know, kind of off the back and as far as design, quality, craftsmanship, a number of things. They could look at our bikes and they could say, yeah, I see it. I see, I see the quality that you're putting into this bike. And yeah, I'd like a custom bike. And yeah, I, I think 72 degree parallel angles just, you know, don't sound sexy enough for me. Stuff like that. So, the, you know, the, the, the idea that, anyway, back to my story, which I digress all too Sorry. easily. <laughs> The idea that, that, you know, tubes hadn't changed, lugs hadn't changed for 75, 80 years led me to realize that the way that they heated and, and cooked these joints in order to get brass to penetrate and to create the joint was was like caveman compared to the way I was very, very meticulously cleaning my joints, mitering my tubes with a milling machine, uh, silver brazing them to keep the temperature down. And all that led to a lower stress joint, which was, so back up further, before I built my first bike, I repaired a Chinelli. And the result of repairing that Chinelli was that I got to look inside, okay? So when you heated it up and you looked inside and all you saw was charcoal and a little bit of brass and barely anything holding it together. And this was one of the most revered bikes in the market. I put two and two together and said, they're using like, you know, blast furnace techniques in making these bikes, I'm going to take more care, and I'm going to, you know, hopefully end up with a better product. And how bold and rash are you at a 15 years old to think that way? You know, so seems like it worked. Yeah. So as a result, I started to see. Uh, not only was I building frames for myself and others, uh, but people were bringing me their broken because no one was repairing broken frames. So I was repairing practically every European brand that needed repair. And I was pulling, pulling a, a bike apart piece by piece, replacing a top tube, replacing a down tube, replacing a fork blade, replacing a steering column, replacing a chain stay, replacing a seat stay. And it wasn't just Chinelli. I realized it was pretty universal that you know, not only was the lug uh, charcoal inside, but sometimes the only brass holding the whole bike together was this tiny millimeter of contact surface around the outside edge of the lug, and the actual lug part was, was burned up inside there with no penetration. And so it wasn't hard to kind of start to 
move in a direction because because that was what I was seeing. And so the problem was, of course, the market wasn't ready. And the market started, just as they, just as they started to balk at me building a bike at 15 years old, they started to balk at 17 years old when I was scrapping the lugs and fillet brazing them and, and, and imagining that I had actually a better joint, I had a stronger joint with fillet brazing. Um, but that was, you know, that was short-lived, and thankfully I was, uh, I was off to the races doing that, and people were kind of responding to the success I had in racing and equivalating with the, uh, you know, the, the wins with the bike is working, and Richie, I want one of Richie's bikes, and, you know, X, Y, Z. So, so that was all years before uh, the mountain bike. Sure. And... But if I, if I understand you correctly, the fillet brazing freed you up to design bikes with different geometry, which in right. turn right. freed you up to build yeah. mountain bike yeah. frames essentially so, because you didn't have to use lugs that would limit your Yeah, I think one geometry. of the pictures in the Peloton magazine shows a 74 picture of me building my tandem. And of course that was all fillet brazed because yeah. of course there aren't lugs for tandems. Right, of course. And so I wanted to build a tandem and that gave me the freedom to build that tandem. And uh, tandems are very, uh, you know, risky in terms of, uh, it's like the difference between building a, uh, a Piper Cub and building a, uh, you know, a, a jet. Yeah. A jet. Risky for the riders as well yeah, as the frame yeah, builder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically back then, it's there, hairy was, on the back there was only <laughs> road bike equipment. There wasn't anything built for a tandem. Yeah. So... If you're bombing 40, 50 miles an hour on a tandem and things go wrong, they go wrong <laughs> big time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, so anyway, there was a lot of, you know, a, a lot of my own guinea pig work and reasons why I wanted to build without lugs. And, and, uh, and I became known as that, known as the guy that did that, whether it be track bikes or road bikes or touring bikes or tandems or, or whatever. And, uh, and so when... <clears throat> When I built my first 650B bike and talked with John Finley, or actually he hassled me for years to build that, and then talked to Joe and saw his first mountain bike, I just said, you know. Joe I, Murray, right? Yeah, no, yeah. Joe Breeze. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I said, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, that's something I want to build too. And so he left. Uh, that, was the, that was the visit that he uh, and Otis ordered their tandem from me. And he left, and uh, I don't know, somehow within the basically first first 12 hours of coming back home to Marin, he ran into Gary and said, hey, Tom's going to build our tandem, and he's going to build one of these ballooners. And, and uh, so Gary picked up the phone and called me and asked if I could build him one, and that's how kind of that whole thing started. But it wasn't, you know... The kind of thing that Gary had to wait too long because I was already off to the races thinking about it, how I was going to do it, and I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll build one, and and if I build another, if I build a third one, do you think he could find someone to buy it?" And so that was kind of how that came down, and you know, a couple of months later, it was done, and he uh, he picked up a check and said, "You know, I have someone that." that wants to buy the third one and so that was did you get a commission on the sale <laughs> uh 
I don't remember exactly. <laughs> I just I just remember. Wow, you know, if there's yeah. a third person, Someone's maybe there's a fourth there, person. Right? Maybe there's a fifth yeah, and person. Before you know it, you've got a bike business, right? You know, and, right. and no sooner than that happened yeah. is him and Charlie are rubbing their nickels together, and they're yeah, and they're starting to figure out a business plan. It's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to think back to that era. What what do you what is as we as we close this out? What are, what are some of your favorite bikes from over the years? Either yours or, or someone else's, for that matter. Yeah. Well, I you know to me I think the first bike you build is 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 of course where everything started. So it's hard not to think that way. It's hard not to think. Well, you know this kind of opened the door, cracked the door open for me to to do things that um, not only have changed my life but have changed so many other people's lives and. Uh, you know, back back in those days, it was um, you know it was just so unique to show up at a race with a bike you built when no one was basically doing that. So that was uh, that was really special. I'd say you know the bike I built for Eric Hyden um, in 1980 that he just came off of his Olympic medals in the in the uh, speed skating and transition into a uh, a road cyclist of renown, and that uh, you know he used that bike until they told him he can't use it anymore because Sirota was the sponsor of the team. Uh, was probably another another bike that was very significant. I, uh, you know, I, I'm just saying I, I didn't invent the the. The, uh, the long bike, but, you know, I played around with the bikes for the Rwandans enough to realize that um, that there was a, a big solution there for for them. This is like the World Bicycle Relief Buffalo yeah. bikes is yeah, what not, you're talking yeah, about, right? Yeah, not World Bike. It was Project Rwanda. Okay, yeah. but a similar concept. In, in yeah, terms but of, it wasn't, yeah. but they, did, they never built a, um, a coffee bike, one that carried hundreds of pounds and and had uh, theirs. Theirs was more for the, the the school kids and and the and the workers. But I built with Schwinn's help. I built uh, 4,000 uh, designed coffee bikes for the well the Rwandans. And those were those were special bikes that uh, that still you know are in in Rwanda. People are you know. Yeah, I get reports of them all the time. It's, yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Uh, I don't know. That's probably that I can think of right now. Too many bikes to remember. And of course, I'm the, sure. tandem, yeah. the tandems that I I build right now for my wife and I, and just the way that we, I, you know, I, 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 let me add one. I'd say the breakaway. The breakaway. The first breakaway. Yeah. And how travel bike. You know how that kind of changed the way I travel with a bike all the time. Yes. Nice. And now a lot of other people. That was that was another one. But very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Tom Ritchie, thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time. And yeah, you're welcome. I think all of the hand-built bike frame manufacturers of today really owe you a debt of gratitude for being one of the pioneers. Yeah. And uh, I certainly, yeah. owning a hand-built bike myself, I can say that I definitely yeah. thank you for, for, for paving the way. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to tell some stories that I haven't really told very much. All right. Yeah. All right.